morning. Thank you for sharing your time with us this morning. We're going to be reading from Revelations 5. If you do not have a Bible, there is one under the seat um, beneath you, and you may take it home as a gift from us. Um, those of you that are reading from those blue Bibles, we're going to page 596. Otherwise, Revelations 5, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Beverly. How are we doing this morning? Yeah. Excited for some revelation. We get to walk through this basically until Christmas time. And we're doing a, we're trying to see the forest more than we're trying to zero in on trees. So we're taking it chunks at a time. So we are covering Revelation 4 and 5 today. And I want to start with uh, uh, one of my favorite shows of all time and also at the same time my most frustrating show that I've ever experienced, The Good Place. If you've watched it, just know there's going to be some spoiler alerts in this moment. If you're like on season four and you're almost to the end, you can step out quietly as I... But here's the essence of the show. It's the afterlife. Ted Danson is one of the best characters in there. Kristen Bell is actually, they make fun of her a lot. She's a party girl from Tempe, went to ASU, and they just throw shade at ASU throughout the entire show. <laughs> It's hilarious. But it's trying to answer this question. How do you get to heaven? And they have an answer that is not all that uncommon to religion, to people, to some of you in this room. is well, you be a good person and you improve at being a good person. So they're in the afterlife. They've all died and they're all trying to get better. It's sort of purgatory. This idea that there's this in-between space where you get a second chance to fix all the mess you made the first go around and to improve yourself. And they all improve themselves. They all improve themselves and they all get better. And then the show shifts and then it camps out on this question. Well, the first question is, how do I get to heaven? The second one is, well, what do I do once I'm in heaven? Like, what is heaven going to be like? And it culminates with that sort of question. And I was so excited to watch the season finale because it was like the, the pinnacle of the writer's worldview and what they thought life was all about and what ultimate reality, heaven, whatever you want to call it, what is there? Because that's the question all of us have. That's not a church or a Christian question. That's a human question. Like what's at the center of it all? What are we going for? And I watched the episode and I just kind of, <sighs> That was so disappointing because <laughs> they go through these cycles of life and they get better and better and better and they're in heaven and they eventually come to this realization. Heaven's kind of boring. I've done it all. I've eaten all the foods. I've learned all the things. I've enjoyed all these relationships. I've seen all the games. I've watched all the shows. At the, once you kind of experience all that life has to offer, like you're kind of sitting there like, well, what's the out? 
and they're standing there in the season finale, and there's this portal where you get to walk through as the ultimate out, and it's basically the Eastern idea of you just cease to exist, and Kristen Bell walks off into it, and she is no more. Eleanor is gone from existence. Why? Because at the center of their idea of heaven and God and eternity is simply this. They had two things, and it's not all that common from life today. It's creation, what do we have to enjoy in this creation, and man or woman at the center. And they wrote a show explaining what it looks like when you have humans and creation at the center of your worldview. What do you have to look forward to? Maybe you can get as good as you can possibly be and enjoy all of life, but you're going to get to a point. You will get to a point where it's like, I've done it all. There's nothing left to do. Why? In this show, the season finale actually sparked this huge suicide sort of watch because all these people watching thinking, yeah, what is there besides this? Here's the problem with the show. I mean, it is a phenomenal show until the very last episode. Just don't give it. There's just no center to pull from. There's no eternal, never-ending, generous, personal center to which to pull from to make sense of life. It's creation and it's man. And some of you walk in this room and you have the exact same center as the good place. You just haven't got to the point where you've tried everything yet to show that you're going to be standing there one day like, is this it? All the money, all the relationships, all the sex, all the success, all the health, all of it. You'll be standing there and you'll want to walk off into an abyss and cease to be nothing because it's not worth it. Revelation. Sorry to go heavy. But Revelation is a big book. Here's what John does in this moment. He just went after these churches. And now in this moment, Revelation chapter 4, I want you to just see. He turns and he looks at the center of the universe, the center of purpose, the center of meaning. And he's going to tell us what's at the center. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. So he just had this vision about these churches. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will now show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit. And we'll go look at it in a second. John gets the opportunity, the privilege, to get a glimpse into the center of the universe. That which the good place just was grasping for nothing. We see it here. Here's what we're talking about today. It's going to be very theological and very personal. There's three centers I want to walk through, just if you're a note taker. There is a center of creation, a true center of creation that whether you agree or not is at the center. There is a true center of the new creation, meaning now that we live in this world that's not heaven, who's at the center to fix this thing and take it in the direction it needs to go? And then lastly, there is a center of our hearts. Every human in this room walks in here with a center, like a gravitational center to your heart that all of your life is orbiting around. You may be able to explain it, define it, or you may not be aware, but it's there. There is something in you that is orbiting everything about your life. We're going to walk through those three centers today. It's going to be beautiful, glorious, and hopefully very, very personal and applicable. So let me just pray, pause, and then we're going to jump into this awesome vision. God, center us on you. Show us where the 
false centers are in our heart. And God, as the book of Revelation is trying to do over and over again, let us see Jesus more clearly as we spend time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here's the first center. Very simply, what is the center of creation? John's answer in his image is simply the seated king. Who's at the center of creation? It is a king who is sitting down. Here's what the book of Revelation is trying to do. Remember, here's where people get really goofy is they read it and they try to make sense of it in terms of modern day. What's Russia? What's America? What's all this? What's the Pope? Primarily, this book was written as a real letter passed around to real people 2,000 years ago dealing with their issues on the ground. And here's their issue on the ground right now in Rome 2,000 years ago. It's this tension. It's the Roman Empire tension. You got it on there? Nice work. Roman Empire tension is who is in charge? Who is in charge? So Rome is the empire of empires, and there's this growing minority group, not ethnic minority, religious minority, called the Christians, who are starting to kind of multiply into tens and twenties and thirties and forties, and then hundreds and thousands. The question is, who is in charge? And he passes this letter around, and part of what John's trying to do is give them a vision for who's really in charge. Because in Rome, it was the emperor. He would come into town, whatever town that was, and he'd have a big regalia of people and people bowing down to him. And he'd have elders around him all bowing down. And he was the king. He was Caesar. He was to be worshipped. This is the center of our universe. This is who's in charge. And John's about to paint a picture from the vision he sees that says, no, there's actually a better center. Let's read it. Verse 2 down through verse 7, I think. John says this, And at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments which golden, with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side, this is where it just gets crazy, sat four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say what they say there. Just, that's crazy, what he just saw. But let's just unpack it. Very simply, go to verse 2 again. I want to hear how he describes the one sitting on the throne. And at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Pause right there. He does not describe whoever that is at all. There's one sitting on the throne, and around him is jasper and carnelian, and like a rainbow-type thing. And it's shining and it's beautiful. But all he says is there's one sitting on the throne. So the focus of this text and this image is not to see him who's sitting on the throne. It's mainly to see what's around it. What he spends most of his time describing is everything around it. 
Verse 4, and around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like a crystal. There's 24 elders. This is the only thing where commentators kind of mostly land on the same thing. What are these 24 elders? A lot of people would say it represents the Old Testament, New Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of the New Testament. It's all of God's totality. His whole story is sitting there watching him, clothed in white. They're righteous. They've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, and they're praising and worshiping him. All of humanity looks to the king. What's he look like? It doesn't say. He's just sitting there on the throne. And then the craziest image we have so far in the book of Revelation, verse 6, around him are these four living creatures with eyes in front, eyes behind, and eyes within, whatever that means. There's one that looks like a lion, one that looks like an ox, one that looks like a flying eagle, and one that has the face of a man. What is this? Is the eagle America? No. Here's what I think most people would say. It's a picture of all of creation, even the way the eyes are described. These crazy creatures, obviously created by someone other than themselves, covered in eyes, and it's all looking at the Lamb. Wherever you look in creation and whatever vantage point you have in creation, there is a center to this thing called creation, the universe, the Heavens and the earth and everything that's been created has a center. Who is it? The one sitting on the throne. There is a center to this. The good place did not have a center. Revelation has a center, and it's him who's sitting on the throne. Here's what I want to be reminded of just from this little section this morning. Here's the first one for us is the king is sitting down. Revelation is going to have stuff flying all over the place soon. I mean, we're not going to be able to keep track of the visions. Like, what is happening? The king is sitting down. He's not pacing. He's not anxious. He's not worried. He's not scheming. He's not planning. He's sitting down. He's in charge. Who can sit down? Lazy people. And people in charge. And he's not lazy. Psalm says this about him. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God doesn't need a nap. I took two yesterday. <laughs> God is sitting down in complete control of all of it. Uh, Xavier mentioned this. We got this thing. We say all of life is all for Jesus. I've yet to meet a single person who doesn't like it. It's like, oh, I love that. That's why I'm at this church. Great. I just want to show you the original quote that we got it from. Like, I'm glad you did not put that on a shirt because this would not be the church I came to. Here's what it says. Abraham Kuyper is a famous reformed theologian. There is not a square inch in all of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. What's that mean? God looks out. The person of Jesus, divine man, looks out and says to all of it, mine. So we said, how do we simplify that? 
all of life is all for Jesus. Most people take that as like, my work matters, and that's true, and my parenting matters, and my hobbies matter. Yes, that's all true. But the foundation of that quote, that idea, that uh, theme we're trying to represent is the fact that Jesus owns it all. Mine. And he has no rival. He has no equal. He owns it all. That's the first thing. He's sitting down and he says, my. Here's the second thing. And I just want, Revelation is crazy. But there's moments where like the tenderness and awareness of God as a father to us comes out. And in this section in particular, he shows it, at least to me. And he does it this way. The way the one on the throne is described, like I said, is verse 2. It simply says, and behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. John does not describe him at all. Jesus said to the people, he's walking around doing miracles and people are like, I love this. I'm following you. This is, I don't know how other people aren't buying this. And he said, well, you've seen all that I've done. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. Which is basically every Christian except for a select few who got to walk the earth with our Savior a long, long time ago. Blessed are you who have not seen and still believe. So he's in charge. He's sitting down, but he doesn't give us a lot more. It's called faith. And that gap between my circumstances, my situation, my life, my health, my kids, my grandkids... And God being in control is not filled in by Scripture with visual things for us to hold on to. Other than he's sitting down, he's on the throne, he is in control. Here's the biblical promise. It's the veiled king. He's sitting on the throne. You're like, I want to see more of him. Me too. I want to understand more. Me too. This life is a life of faith. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. Blessed are us who believe without seeing the king and his face. Now, here's the attention that comes out of just this image. A king sitting down is wonderful if he's doing it because he's in charge. A king sitting down because he's apathetic becomes a problem. A dad who sits down may be in charge or may be lazy. My wife has a great book she's going to write one day called Parenting from the Couch. <laughs> How do you parent with ever? Without ever having to get up. I mean, that's really the goal we're all trying to get after parents, right? Like, how do I engage this without doing this? And the tension we have with a king who is in charge of creation, the world is not as it should be. What is God doing about it? All of us are filling in that with some sort of answer. Here's the other. How are we going to fix this? Like, what are we going to do to fix this? Like, here's just, I was trying to think through categories. Here's, I think, the three big categories people camp out on thinking about a broken world. The first one is sort of denial through hedonism. This world is broken. My grandma has cancer. Life is hard. I'm going to deny that which is real through hedonism, self-pleasure, drugs, addiction, food, sexual appetite, whatever it may be. I'm gonna, the world now is all about self-expression. I'm going to tackle life with everything I have. Like, just so you know, we're in this, like, major social experiment with young people in media and technology. We're, like, in chapter one, page three. 
of what happens to people if you give them full access to their inner workings and tell them, express yourself fully, and then give them access to all that the world has to give and say, here, now I want you to walk forward in health and prosperity, young man, young woman. We're like on the beginning stages and is not trending well. This world is crushing itself with self-expression and access to everything, which means maybe restraint is more so the missing ingredient in a happy and whole culture. So someone's just denying, I'm going to just get life for all its worth. That's what good place was. I mean, they did everything. That was their path to happiness. Here's the second one. And this is one of the louder ones, especially depending on what you tend to watch or listen to. It's political. We're going to fix this world through the political system in place. So the first, we, we decided we're going to teach through Romans a year and a half ago, a long time ago. The first, as I'm like looking at the internet and studying, like is that, is something pops up and I think, oh, that goes with this sermon series. I put it in this note thing. And the first thing I did was a tweet from a political figure in America, a conservative Republican figure. I said, whoa, that's exactly what I need to use in Revelation. And here's the moment I get to use it. I'm not going to share the name, but just so you know, here's what one of our political leaders has said. We know that we're in the last of the last days. I don't disagree with that. It's not time to get upset about it. Still on the same page. It's a time to know that you were called to be a part of these last days. You get to have a role in ushering in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Whoa, that escalated quickly. I'm all for politics and civil engagement and knowing stuff and voting for people you think are in line with what the world should be. But when you start using language like this activity that we're a part of is going to usher in the second coming of Jesus, that is nowhere in the book of Revelation. The, the strongest language God uses in his word to describe what we're about in a world that's against us is witnesses to Jesus and what he's done and what he's doing. We're to love and serve and do a lot, but political is one, just to kind of go out both sides. And then I saw this commercial the other day. I'm like, oh, gosh. It's an Apple commercial. It's her name, Octavia Spencer. She was in The Help. Wonderful actress. She plays Mother Earth. And the Apple boardroom is doing this meeting. And Mother Earth is going around checking in on all these corporations, making sure they're green enough for her satisfaction. It's like, and Apple has crossed every box. And we're going to have zero carbon footprint by the year 2030. And Mother Earth drills them. Are you sure? No, no, no. Yes. She says, you're doing a great job. So Apple's solution to how we're going to fix this world is better stewardship of creation itself. And leading the charge is Apple. Just buy their products, trust Tim Cook, and get in line with their agenda. And this is politics, good, necessary, God-ordained. Stewardship of the earth and our resources, good, right, ordained by God. But when those things become your center for how the world will be fixed, you're going to be like good place, stuck at the end of all your resources and all your politics and all your voting and all you have. And you're going to be like, is this all that I can do? 
and you're going to want to push the eject button and cease to exist if that's what you have to fix this for. Revelation has a much more beautiful picture of how and precisely who gets to fix this place. Let's read Revelation 5 together. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Just the scroll is sort of the rest of history. It's who is worthy to write the rest of history knowing that this world is broken. Judgment, salvation, redemption. Who is worthy to write this story? And no one in heaven or earth under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Pause right there. Rome thought the emperor was going to fix this world. Pax Romana, we're going to bring peace. We're going to conquer. We're going to have a kingly answer to the problems in this world. We will fix this place. And John's answer seems in line with what Rome was hoping for. A lion from the tribe of Judah, from the root of David, Israel's greatest king, who conquers, who is worthy to open the seals. He hears a solution that lines up with what people are hoping for. Verse 6. In between the throne and the four living creatures, all those creatures we just described and all those elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Pause right there. Here's our second center. The Bible answer to new creation, the way the world is going to get fixed, is simply a standing lamb. That's what Revelation 5 is all about the standing lamb. And I just want to bring you into this moment. John heard the angel sounds like a trumpet. My One of my kids is playing trumpet now. Picture a really good trumpet player playing bass, if that's a thing in trump. And it's booming out. And he hears. And that voice says, there's a lion from the tribe of Judah. The root of David. He has conquered. He hears all this. Sounds beautiful. Here's how faith works. You hear, and then you respond. He hears. There's a lion, a king, who is here to conquer. And then he looks. Verse 6. This is now his vision. He's no longer hearing. He's seeing. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, all this vision, I see a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth. Here's the Roman tension. It's the same as ours. How is this world going to be fixed? Here's the American tension. How is this world going to be fixed? Here's your tension and my tension. How is this world going to be fixed? This is not heaven. No one would say, this seems like how God wanted it to be. Single parents, racism, poverty, wars, depression, anxiety, suicide. This seems like no one thinks that. 
So everyone has this gut thing in them. How is this world going to be fixed? Just to give you Christian language to think, think about the brokenness of the world. Because everyone agrees there. They just don't have a framework for like all the categories or the solution. But the categories, according to Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, do not do this. Yeah, I'll think about it. And they do it. And in that moment, there's fractures throughout the universe. And here's the four that are described in there. Man immediately has a broken relationship with himself. He's insecure and he's full of shame. Why did you walk in here with any sort of body issue insecurities? If there's a good God who started this story, why do you walk in here and I walk around with insecurity about my weight, my height, my looks, my academic skills, my depression? And why is anything wrong inside of me? Sin fractured everything. The second thing that's broken. And then immediately Adam and Eve look at each other and they don't embrace in a warm kiss. They fight. This was your fault. Your fault. And then they have kids together, and their one kid murders their other kid. Not as like a comical, like, wow, that escalated, but as a picture of what sin does. Every human relationship is fractured. Nation, nation, ethnicity, ethnicity, man, woman, it's all broken. Creation itself is also broken. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. Why is there cancer? Why are there weeds? Why is the weather not better? All of that, we live in a broken, fractured universe because we sin. And then finally, the most obvious to anyone paying attention is there now a separation between God and man. We don't come into this world together with God. We come in separate, and it's all broken. But John sees the solution, the lion of Judah, the root of David, the conquering one, and he turns and what he sees is a lamb standing as though it had been slain. John, how is this world going to get fixed? Through a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Like, let's just walk through the, the language. Lamb is one of sacrifice. Sacrifice is necessary to fix this place. Not good intentions, not wishful thinking. Not resources that we bring to the table, but sacrifice. The lamb was the picture of the Passover. We need a sacrifice. Standing. What a beautiful picture. Like, what does a slain lamb look like that's standing? It looks like a crucified Savior who walked out of his own grave. Who all of his followers ran and hid except for a few brave women thinking it's over. I thought the story was getting fixed here. He's dead until he walks out of his own grave like a slain lamb standing victorious. And then John uses the language he's going to use over and over again, one of conquering. He conquers. And how does he conquer? Then they got this image of seven horns and seven eyes. What does that mean? Horns is a picture of power. Eyes is a picture of wisdom. This standing lamb is now all-powerful, all-wise. The cross was not the end of the story. Like what picture, I would ask this, I used to teach youth, and I would ask, give me the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ with just emojis. Kind of get in, you know. And I'd say, often, I'd say, you can't use a cross. So for adults in the room, tell me 
show me the picture of Christianity in the gospel without using a cross. A lamb standing as though he had been slain hits it pretty right on the head. What a beautiful picture of how this world will be fixed. God sets aside his kingliness, comes down to earth to become the sacrificial lamb, not to say a sacrifice, but to walk out of his own grave so that John sees him in all his glory. That is the center of how this world is going to be fixed, period. One of my favorite authors, a guy named Dean Fleming, just summarizes this whole section of Revelation beautifully. I want to read it. The most surprising thing about this book is that the center of the throne, holding together both the throne and the world that is ruled by the throne, we find the sacrifice lamb. At the very heart of the one who sits on the throne is the cross. The world to come is ruled by the one who on the cross took violence upon himself in order to conquer the enmity and embrace the enemy. This next line is, the lamb's rule is legitimized not by the sword but by his wounds. And with the lamb at the center of the throne, the distance between the throne and the subjects has collapsed, look at this line, in the embrace of the triune God. The world's broken. We're on the wrong side of history until a lamb collapses the distance between us and God by being the slain lamb. How is this world going to get fixed? Here's the Christian answer. Very simply, the slain lamb who is standing is the only hope for this world. Everyone needs that. Some of us in this room have that. That's what the world needs. They don't need our political opinions. They don't need our thoughts on this, our hopes, our strong opinions about whatever. They need something to fix the problem. And the Bible says it's the slain lamb, period. That's it. How are you going to fix death, sin, and Satan? A slain lamb who is standing victorious is the Bible's answer. That's the center of the story. Creation center, the one sitting on the throne we can't see. New creation, the world that we exist in now, who's at the center? We can see him a little more clearly through images, and we get this lamb image to grab hold of, to follow, and to place our hope on. And it takes us to our last center, and this is where it gets very personal, the center of ourselves, the center of worship. Because the sections I skipped over in 4 and 5 are simply where the people or the creatures or the angels or the elders respond in worship. And here's what I want all of us to know. Every single person comes in here with the same identity at their core. You and I are worshipers. You may be a man. You may be a woman. You may be rich. You may be poor. You may be old. You may be young. But all of us at our center is this worship center. The book of Ecclesiastes says it this way. God has placed eternity into our hearts. Why? So that man might seek his way and find God. Meaning, it's like he created us as finite beings with this infinite longing in our heart. It's the way I describe my thirdborn, who is just a feisty raccoon of a man. (laughs) And it's like God created him in this tiny little body with the emotions and the grit and the fierceness of a WWE wrestling, and like it just doesn't match up. Every human's the same way, where he exists in this finite existence with this desire for eternity. That's why Good Place was written. What is bigger than this? And their answer was stuff, dates, food, and then you're done at some point. What's the center of your heart 
Revelation gives us some postures to remember on how to worship the Lord. Here's the first one. We worship with our words. Revelation 4, 8 through 10 says this. Here's the first response in this beautiful throne room scene. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night they never cease to say. They simply say this. They're not singing. They're not rapping. They're not. They're speaking this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And this might be one of the hardest things for us. Like I live in a mostly boy house with one wife in there. And boys have a hard time articulating because they look at their dad who has a hard time explaining himself. That's why we have small groups to learn how to speak and enunciate. One of the ways we worship is just to say things about God. Not necessarily about what God is or isn't doing in my life, although that's part of being a Christian. It's just speaking to God facts and truth and beauty of who he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Who was and isn't is. You do that, you're worshiping. You're centering your heart more on Jesus. The next one, we worship with our talent and treasure. Verse 9 through 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. See what they do? They cast their crowns. All that they have to give, they give back to him. Now, how do you practically do that? It's a lifestyle. And just, we have a lot of young people developing the habits and creating the ruts in your homes, single or married, that are going to shape you and your family and generations to come after you? How are you posturing yourself in a way where you're giving your time and your talents to the Lord? Here's two simple ways. Time, God gave us a Sabbath as a way to say, do not work every day. Give me one of those. And then, tithes and treasures and our church doesn't have a stance on you got to give a tithe but for members we say each person must decide in their own heart how they're going to give because jesus says it this way wherever your money is that's where your heart is like you could say what what are you i'm a jesus follower i love jesus 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 and jesus would show up and say can i see your wallet please well you can say anything you want so just know, worship with everything, part of that is your money, which is hard. As a guy who's been helping lead our family for 16 years now, giving away to church and to God is hard. It gets easier, but it's hard. But they cast their crowns before him as a way to center their hearts on the one who is the only one worthy of it all. And then they also sing, verse, chapter 5, verse 9. They don't just sing, they sing a new song. And Chandler's going to introduce a new song, not because of this passage, because Chandler's just great like that. But here's what it says about their new song. Verse 9, chapter 5, they sang a new song, saying, Worthy, now they're looking at the slain lamb, no longer an empty 
faceless king. They're looking at this lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. You sing when you're happy. You sing when your heart's full. You sing to lean your hearts more towards worship to the one who is worthy. We sing. Chandler and the team has built a great worship culture. And if you're not there yet, we're not watching or judging. But just know, it's an act of worship. And then finally, this book, 4 and 5 together, ends with just a whole picture of worship. It captures it all. Verse 11, chapter 5. What's the response to the throne and to the Lamb? Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. A way to say everyone in all creation said this with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's there saying this to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing honor, glory, and might forever and ever. And here's the ultimate posture that all of us will be in one day, whether we choose it now or not. And all four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The biblical word for worship is not singing. It's laying down face before he who is worthy. None of us are there yet like we ought to be. But part of church is practicing that which we get to do for all of eternity is giving back to God, which already his. He is the center of the universe, of creation, of new creation, and he wants to be the center of your heart. And he's given us a church to do that together with. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for the... The simplicity of the message of Revelation as we look through the trees at the forest. That there is a king sitting on the throne who rules and reigns and has from eternity past and will reign forever and ever. And there is a king who did not stay seated as the world crumbled and cracked and fractured. But the king who stood up took off his crown, put on flesh and DNA and skin and freckles and toenails to limit himself so that he could be the lamb who was slain. And God, thank you that that lamb now stands victorious over all of history. And we as a church do not have to have the answers figured out on our own. We just have to go to you. So I pray this moment we would uh, each posture ourselves in a way that centers our hearts more on you. Whether that's simply speaking truth or praying truth or singing truth or giving away our treasure to you. Help us to worship now sincerely and passionately and authentically, Lord. We love you. Amen.